This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Good morning. We hope to have a couple of very special guests uh, in a few minutes on the program uh, later on, uh, taking us to the end of the hour. But uh, in the interim, let me just uh, mention again, I've talked about this in the past. Michigan is a state that elects its judges, even if we don't know who they are. So when you go to vote on August 7th, depending on where you live in Michigan, uh, there are going to be some judgeships on the ballot. Overall, this year, between now and November 6th, uh, covering the two elections, uh, August 7th and November 6th, uh, there are going to be about 250 judgeships up for grabs throughout the state. And it's not just the two seats on the Supreme Court, but there are going to be about a dozen on the Court of Appeals. There are going to be maybe 90 circuit court judgeships. There are going to be about 120 for district court. There are going to be 20 on the probate bench. And, uh, that's about as many as we get in a single year. Some other years, uh, 2016, 2014, not as many are on the ballot, but this year, because of the cycle of judicial terms that are set up by law in Michigan, uh, they're going to be 250 or so, Uh, a statewide poll commission, uh, back in 1990 found that nearly four voters out of every five, no quote, very little, unquote, or, quote, nothing at all about who is running for the judiciary in any given election. The results of any survey taken today wouldn't be very different. Uh, However, that same 1990 survey, we're talking three decades ago, also revealed that two-thirds of all voters demanded that they continue to have the right to elect judges rather than allow them to be appointed by a governor after fly specking from some Missouri style commission. And that sentiment probably hasn't changed today if we took another survey. So it's important to keep in mind that in Michigan anyway, judges and judicial candidates are above all else politicians. That means They're as susceptible to sleaze, chicanery, and stupidity as non-lawyers, even though they've taken an oath to know better. The State Bar of Michigan may try to police its own, but it's a losing battle. And a pair of state Supreme Court decisions in 2000 and 2001 involving 37th District Court Judge John Shimura of Warren in Macomb County made it even tougher. Those who would join the so-called berobed brethren or sisterhood, as the case may be, can get downright nasty when they grapple for the gavel. And the high court and the bar are virtually powerless to stop them. Even those already on the bench are not exempt from paranoia, spite, and petty vituperation. For example, a decade ago, 19 sitting judges in Wayne County's Third Circuit Court went ballistic 
when they found out that a single African-American assistant prosecuting attorney, a lawyer named Kenneth King of Taylor, had the audacity to challenge their reelection bids. They felt especially aggrieved that King's boss was Wayne County prosecuting attorney Kim Worthy. She's still the prosecuting attorney today. She had just been appointed to the job by these same judges. And one of her assistants, King's prospective incumbent opponents, actually barred him from her courtroom. In the end, King received a convenient promotion to the staff of Wayne County Executive Bob Ficano and promptly withdrew from the race. Later, King was further rewarded with an appointment to Detroit's 36th District Court by Governor Jennifer Granholm at that time. So, yes, the stakes are high. And... The vast majority of this year's 240 contests will only be on the November 6th general election ballot, which will consist mainly of uncontested incumbents winning in what are called walkovers, meaning they have no opponent printed on the ballot, and basically they're simply going to walk into office with no opposition. Yes, some sitting judges have drawn challengers, which means there won't be any primary on August 7th and the two will face off in November when the incumbent will win in the vast majority of cases. But if the incumbent judge or judges draw more than one opponent, they'll be forced to compete in the August 7th primary. And on that date, the incumbents will almost certainly finish first or at least they'll make the November 6th general election runoff, at which time they'll almost certainly be reelected. So the evidence that they're going to be reelected is a long list, uh, but you'll never guess what the statistics are. For instance, in 2012, voters were easier on sitting judges than ever before. Of the 205 Nonpartisan judges who sought re-election at the Supreme Appellate Circuit, District, and Probate Court levels, all but one, and that's 99.6% one. The vast majority of them, which is 89.3%, did so without competition. And that was the sixth straight election in which a lower proportion of incumbents were ousted than in the previous cycle. Why do they get reelected so easily? Because they have the so-called incumbency designation beneath their names on the ballot. If they're an incumbent judge, it'll say judge of the court of appeals, or it'll say Ontonagon County probate judge beneath their name. And of course the probate, uh, judge challenger will have nothing beneath his or her name, uh, just their naked name on the ballot while they're running against an incumbent who the voters will see is already in office. And if there hasn't been any scandal involving this particular incumbent, you can bet that they're going to be, uh, you know, renominated or reelected pretty handily. Uh, you could go on and on. Uh, 
whether going back in time, it was any, uh, tougher for a challenger, uh, to beat an incumbent than it is today. But I doubt if you're going to find it, uh, in 1990, when Jim Blanchard was still governor, but John Engler denied him a third term, it was the same old story. And of all the judges uh, trying to perpetuate themselves at all levels that year, 93.9% were reelected. And in the 56 jurisdictions where sitting judges faced challengers, incumbents retained their seats in all but 13. That's 76.5%. And by the way, of the defeated incumbents, three were appointed by Blanchard and had not been elected in their own right previously, which meant, you know, they had uh, no experience being confirmed, so to speak, by the voters into office uh, by the time the election rolled around. They were running for the first time, too, but they still had that incumbency designation beneath their name. Uh, we're going to have a couple of special guests we're hoping here in a few minutes. And if not, uh, we'll talk further about what's going on, uh, at the, uh, August 7th primary election. There were a lot of developments this week, as you can imagine. Uh, we're less than two weeks out from the August 7th primary. So we'll be back in a few minutes and we'll see where we go from there. Listening to the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We're back, and we have on the line with us a very important uh, political consultant in Lansing of uh, longevity. I mean, uh, maybe almost, I don't know, four decades. I hate to say it. Uh, Tom Shields uh, is your title president, Marketing Resource Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning. I've been around almost as long as you have. <laughs> no, nobody's been around as long as I have. You're just a youngster <laughs> compared to me. But look, I just want to ask you, uh, looking at this year's um, election sweepstakes from top to bottom, governor and U.S. Senate at the top all the way to the bottom, is there anything about this year that sticks out to you that's any different than previous years? And if so, what is it? Well, you know, I think what's, what's really interesting in this, this election this week so far is that you know, uh, the, 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 the person who's, who's probably affecting this election more than anybody is not on the ballot. Um, you know, it's, it's President Trump who is still carrying the, you know, the, the political banter and the, the concerns and the, the attacks one way or the other, yet he's not on the ballot. And, uh, you know, people running for and against him, um, you know, during this election, uh, and, and, you know, how it's going to affect the, the, the election in the end, who knows? Um, you know, Democrats are predicting this blue wave. Um, you know, Republicans, especially in the primary here, are sticking with the president all the way through this. Do you see Trump uh, having a big effect, let's say, on the uh, governor-Republican primary this year? Oh, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, I think Brian Kelly probably soon... Or uh, uh, so does his, his fate when 
when he uh, pulled his endorsement in 2016 from the president. And, and um, you know, we've done some polling, and we asked people in the Repu- who identify as Republicans, do they consider themselves closer to the Republican Party or closer to Trump? And 70% of those people believe that they're closer to Trump than they are the Republican Party. So I think this, he sealed his fate. Uh, when he uh, when he pulled his endorsement in 2016, even though he's recanted now and said he supports the president, but you know that I think brought about the endorsement of uh, from Trump of Shooty uh, from Trump, and uh, you know that frankly is going to carry him certainly through the primary. It looks like. Yeah, I mean the most recent poll I've seen, one by Epic MRA, uh, just in the last 24 hours, has Shooty up something like 42 to 24 percent over Cali, and I think. Uh, uh, Patrick Colbeck, state senator, is at 11 percent, and Dr. Jim Hines at 8 percent. Uh, you know, maybe 15 percent undecided. You think that's kind of the way it's going to shake down on August 7th? Well, unless something drastic happens in the last two weeks, that's probably the likely uh, makeup here. I think Shooty appears to be running away at this point in time. Uh, you know, and the problem with people uh, like Colbeck and, and Hines that they have had is that you know Republicans you know sort of like. Uh, shooting, they like Cali, so there wasn't a within the Republican Party. There wasn't this rebellion going on of of throw the bums out. We need somebody new, and and uh, and it looks like no one's been able to really lay a hand on Bill Shooty yet. What about the U.S. Senate race, the Republican primary? Now there, it's a little bit more confusing as to who is the real uh, you know Trump uh, candidate. Is it uh, John James? Is it Sandy Pensler? What do you think? You know, uh, Pensler, you know, put his own money in, so he was able to get out early uh, in advertising. And, uh, you know, I think probably got an early lead. Um, James has done a great job raising dollars, and I think he's, you know, he's certainly uh, uh, come on strong at the end. Um, this is going to be uh, an interesting race. I think it's going to be very tight going down to Election Day between these two. They're probably both going to end up spending, you know, similar amounts of dollars when it's all said and done. So there won't be really a, a financial advantage here. So it, and, and they've both been trying to fight from who's the guy that'll be the strongest supporter of Donald Trump when they get to the office. Again, they, didn't, they don't want to do anything here that's something that, that causes a problem with those big Trump supporters. And see that most of the, uh, the advertising by the James campaign against Spencer is that he has said things that weren't complimentary of, of the president. Um, and so, you know, it's really it's a sort of a battle here of who can be the, tr- the, the best Trump candidate in order to get through this primary election. That may or may not help either one of these when they get to the, uh, the general election and have to face off with Stabenow on her $10 million. Does the fact that uh, whoever the Republican nominee is uh, going to be uh, obviously joined at the hip with Trump uh, help them, do you think, potentially maybe uh, in November against Stabenow, even though that's a steep hill to climb to beat uh, the incumbent Debbie Stabenow, or does it hurt, or it depends on what happens this fall with Trump? Well, you know, it, it does. It depends. And you never know. I mean, from week to week, uh, there is a new development in the, uh, uh, in the, in the White House. Um, some good, some bad. You just never know. I mean, he has good weeks, and he has, you know, he has bad weeks. So you just never know where they're going to be in, in October. And, and it's always uh, risky to tie your fate to something you can't control. And they obviously have no control over what you know, President Trump does. And, and, uh, and sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. That will help. I mean, if, but if they can capture the same mood of the electorate, which is, you know, um, 
clean the swamp out, uh, throw everybody out of Washington, try something new, which you know it still exists a little bit. I mean, there's still a lot of, not a lot of love loss for those people who are in Washington from the general electorate. If they can capture that, then there's a chance. I know we did some polling uh, over the over the last year on on Stabenow, and we found her hard support only at about 25 percent, and about 55 percent of the people willing to take a look at a new person. So the the uh, the possibility is there. Uh, the mood of the electorate is right there, but you know, can they convince people that Stabenow is no longer the person, and they're better? That'll, that's what's going to happen in the general election campaign. What about these congressional races? U.S. House, uh, there are three open seats this year, and the ninth, the eleventh, the thirteenth districts down in Southeast Michigan. In the eleventh district, uh, there is a huge battle going on: five Republicans, five Democrats running to succeed David Trot who uh, announced earlier this year he's not going to run again. Uh, is the Trump factor going to determine who wins the Republican primary down there? And if so, uh, does Lena Epstein, who is the only prominent female in the race, have an advantage because she was co-chair statewide of the Trump campaign in 2016? What do you think? Yeah, I think that that, that could potentially have a, uh, a real effect on her. First of all, she's got the most money, too, uh, in this race, and you know, she's somewhat self-funded. And plus, she's been able to raise a fair amount of dollars, so she she's got the financial advantage. She's only the female, uh, you know, prominent female in that race too, which gives her another advantage. And in fact, she's got the Trump connection. And when you have a multi-candidate primary like that, you know, you can win with thirty percent, thirty-two percent of the vote. Uh, so, I mean, if 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 it was strictly a one-on-one race down there, I don't think the Trump uh, connection would be that much of an advantage. But given the multi-candidate primary. And if, you know, when you start sorting through all those things, if you're looking for somebody that, you know, maybe that's the thing that, that tips the, uh, the balance for you, say, well, she was the Trump leader, let's, you know, let's, let's go with her. I think she's got the advantage here. Rocky Workowski, obviously, has been around a long time, almost as long as you and I, Bill. And uh, he's, you know, run for everything down there, and he's got a good following. So I think he's, he's given her a run for her money. And there's some, you know, state legislators also who are running in that who all have their own little bases of support around that district. So everybody's going to get some some portion of their base that seems to have a, uh, a little bit more, and Rocky, more of a, of a district-wide appeal. Tom Shields, unfortunately, we're out of time right now, but we're going to get you back here again in a couple of weeks and have you analyze what went on August 7th and uh, project ahead to November 6th general election. I want to thank you very much for being a guest. Tom Shields of Marketing Resource Group. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Nice to be here. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We're back, and we've got a very special guest this morning, uh, Interim President of Michigan State University, John Engler. And uh, I'd just like to start out with this question for uh, the Interim President, former Governor John Engler. And by the way, welcome to The Political Insider, President Engler. Well, thank you very much, Bill. Great to be with you. Uh, congratulations on the show. See, I'm newly back to Michigan, or now almost six months, and so I wasn't aware that there were brand new leading uh, <laughs> radio programs like the Political Insider that I could even be on and uh, communicate to citizens across the great state of Michigan. We really appreciate your 
being with us this morning. Look, let me just start out with this question. Back in the late 1980s, I know that seems like a long time ago to a lot of people, seems like yesterday to me. I can remember Senator John Engler getting ready to run for governor in 1990. Uh, You were focused on it. You filed, you ran, you won, you served three, four-year terms. Uh, And now all these many years later with everything that has happened and everything you've gone through and everything you've accomplished, uh, not only in Michigan, but down in Washington, D.C., all of a sudden you get this call out of the blue, as I understand it, like five or six months ago, not expecting this. uh, You weren't planning to do this, saying, will you come back and be the interim president of Michigan State University? So you've been in the job about six months, and I'm just asking you, uh, how has it been compared to being governor? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> what? How well, that's do you, a good how, question, you know, and, and one that uh, you know I've I've been asked before, and and certainly thought about. I, I have to say, being governor is harder than being president of Michigan State because of the complexities of state government and the kinds of issues we were dealing with. But there's one difference that makes this job harder, and that's because it's a really non-political job. I'm, I'm in a position where, as a university president, all of a sudden there's all of this uh, privacy protection for students and their information. We've been involved in very uh, extensive litigation, and so part of that has been covered by judges' protective orders. You can't say something about this or you can't say something about that. And so for the first time in my life, I'm in a position where I, I, I literally can't talk about things that I know and I have to listen to things that are simply, in my view, not the same as I would uh, explain them. And uh, frankly, uh, you, 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 it's tough. You're, you're sort of having your hands tied behind your back. That, that is different. And then, of course, the other big difference between being governor and being a president of the university is uh, the application of uh, the Freedom of Information Act. And so uh, you don't even have an opportunity to privately communicate with uh, some of the key people that are working with you so you can explore ideas and kick things around. Uh, let me ask, last week, I think you testified before a uh, U.S. Senate committee in Washington, D.C. about uh, the status of things at the university, what sure. you've been doing. Uh, did you feel you made an impact down there and got a message out that maybe some people weren't aware of uh, What and the reaction to what you said? How, how would you characterize that? Well, you know, the hearing was supposed to be about the safety of student-athletes. Uh, there was a little bit of that in the hearing. There was also a lot of, uh, as Senate hearings go in Washington, D.C., a lot of uh, bluster and a lot of showmanship going on and a lot of, uh, you know, sort of appealing to different constituencies. But I do think because we had a chance to submit written testimony and really walk through the kinds of uh, substantive changes that we've made here at Michigan State in the six months that I've been here, and some of them build on things that have been started before I arrived, but I think uh, the agenda in the last six months has been pretty robust and our implementation schedule pretty aggressive. I, I told the committee, and this did get some attention, I said I think it's impossible to have another Larry Nasser situation at Michigan State because of the changes that have been made in the way the medical clinic deals with minor children. Uh, most of the victims of Larry Nasser were minors at the time. Most of them were accompanied by their parents, but uh, even so, there were tremendous, uh, I think, improvements that were necessary in terms of how you uh, you oversee 
the doctor has such a relationship of trust with a patient that uh, it, it clearly led to uh, not only treatment, but then created this opportunity for the horrific abuse that was naturally natural pet perpetuated. And so we, we think we've changed the the way in which we inform people, the way in which we give consent is obtained and clarity about what the procedure will be and about the presence of chaperones and why there's a chaperone and what the chaperone does in the room and change the billing procedures. And I think there's a much greater level of accountability and, and clearly the leadership of the College of Osteopathic Medicine has also been changed. We had a a dean that failed in his responsibilities, and he's gone from the university. So we got a chance to talk about that. And then we got into, uh, in our written testimony, about uh, the whole relationship violence question, the the relationship among the sexes, uh, if you will, and um, talked about the kinds of things we're doing on the prevention side of the equation, uh, Rather than being the best at responding to sexual abuse, we'd like to prevent it. But if we can't prevent it and prevention fails, then we also do feel we've got to be effective in responding. And it's interesting to me, Bill, to see so many other universities all of a sudden starting to be in the news. And, uh, boy, I understand what they're going to be going through because we've certainly been through the gauntlet here at Michigan State. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, you're describing what you've experienced at Michigan State and what you're doing now to make sure it doesn't happen again. Do you think there was a message out there to other colleges and universities throughout the country? In a sense, MSU has been the canary in the coal mine. It's like, hey, you know, it's a new day. Uh, Something like this might happen to you. Do you, other colleges and universities, have procedures and policies and rules and regulations in place to handle this better than you would have if what happened to Michigan State had never occurred? Well, I, I think that's a really important question. I, It's interesting. I mean, there's a subset of these kinds of cases. I mean, in the case of the University of Southern California, it was a gynecologist that was on the staff. Uh, in the case of Ohio State University, which has been in the news, it was a doctor uh, or a medical professional on their staff. Um, so you have these. There are, in some cases, uh, uh, faculty members or athletic leaders, coaches that have been, uh, you know, put into the spotlight in these other universities. So, so it is. It is something, unfortunately, that's not uh, limited to one or two campuses, in my view. And and I would certainly urge anybody that is paying attention around the country to act quickly to really examine. Uh, are there old complaints that weren't listened to? Uh, are there any warning signs that you can spot where you can go back? And you better, on a going forward basis, the other thing that's happened over a decade is the rules have changed two or three times, too. So there's there's much more, uh, in, in 2018 today, there's much more obligation in terms of reporting, who has to report, and what has to happen when there is a report of something. That's very different than it was 10 years ago, even. Let me ask you this. Does anything else have to happen in the Michigan legislature in terms of bills passing that would affect your uh, situation in Michigan State or not? Is the legislature pretty much completed its work as far as you're concerned? I think they're done. The only thing really, uh, I was talking with Bob Young, our general counsel here at Michigan State, the very effective former chief justice, and the, the only thing really left in Michigan is the wrapping up of the uh, attorney general's investigation, and we 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 have a sense that that's you know 
that's coming to a conclusion. But again, some of his investigations seem to go on endlessly, and we hope that's not the case here. I want to talk in a few minutes more about this, but just in general, just very quickly, because this segment, uh, we're almost out of time. What has the media coverage been like of the state of the uh, Michigan State University Larry Nasser situation, in your opinion? I think it's tended to focus on the more sensational aspects of the coverage, and I, I have uh, said that I don't think there's enough uh, serious uh, review and study of what these changes are that have been made and, and how they're uh, going to be effective, in my view, and why I believe they're going to be effective in, in preventing uh, problems in the future. We can talk more about that, but I, I would like to see more of that focus. But this is a story, it's got all of the elements for the uh, made-for-television movie that no doubt will come along in the future. Right. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back with more from interim president of Michigan State University, John Engler, former governor. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We're back, and uh, we've got a very special guest here this morning for our last segment, uh, interim president of Michigan State University, former Governor John Engler, on the line with us. Uh, I want to ask the governor if he uh, remembers, I know he does, uh, back when he was in the State House of Representatives in uh, the late 1970s, there was the famous PBB crisis, polybrominated bifinals, uh, with... Uh, massive, uh, uh, carnage wreaked, uh, among our dairy cattle in Michigan. Uh, and I'm just curious oh, how the governor, uh, remembers coverage of that crisis and what happened and, uh, how it would be covered today. If that happened today, what do you think, uh, president Engler? <laughs> That's a fascinating question. I, I do remember that because, uh, we buried a lot of cows. We put a lot of cows in the ground uh, because of the contamination of the feed where inadvertently fire retardant, which contained that chemical, was mixed into feed then put into the cows, and uh, it, it created these elevated levels of, uh, of toxins, really. And uh, there was certainly an overabundance of caution, probably, but uh, it was being dealt with uh, the Milliken administration at the time uh, it, it was quite a crisis, and in fact, it even made careers. I believe that uh, you know the fellow Bill Shuley ultimately defeated uh, a man named Donnell Bost up in Saginaw County. It, it was said at the time he kind of rode a dead cow to Washington because of that crisis. But uh, I, I do think the these kinds of stories, whether it was PBB back in the late seventies or you know. You know, certainly I, I have was not in Michigan during the time of uh, everything being uh, debated in Flint and uh, the water system over there. The they're, they're just news today, I would say, generally in America, uh, because it's so dominated by cable and it's so dominated by this, you know, 24-7, everything instantly on television really does tend to focus on uh, the visual and the sensational and boy, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that's always been there. What I think is missing now is the 
analytical piece where you could have a, a serious veteran reporter spend some time and probably some of the best reporting I've seen done uh, on on Michigan State actually is a recent article. It was in the Columbia Journalism Review where where the author went into great detail. She talked to one of the survivors and went through how this could have happened, uh, what what she was thinking, what her family was thinking, and, and really laid it out in great detail. And it explains how there could be a predator who could be undiscovered for so long. And it was in part the predator who was a doctor using that guise of medical treatment to abuse and assault women and you know the parent right in the room but nobody realizing this was going on the young woman herself not realizing she was being abused given maybe she's 12 13 14 years old so uh and i I think most people don't understand that there's this sense of well and, and this is the other thing that concerns me today is that there's automatically well everybody knew well you know it's hard for everybody to know in these situations, and uh, I, uh, it, it is interesting, and, and I think there is a difference. What we saw at our, you know, Penn State is where officials actually did have specific knowledge, and they paid a heavy price for that. At, at Michigan State, that that depends on what these investigations show, but at this point, uh, that hasn't been discovered. Yeah, going forward and looking at analysis, I mean, what are uh, some of the things that you think the uh, news media ought to be focusing on that you're doing at Michigan State yeah. or that you have done already? Well, I think they really need to walk through this, the, the changes that have been made and how medical procedures are handled and all of the things that we're, we're doing there. Uh, I think we need, we need to look at, in the, the, the Nassar situation was one predator with a very large number of victims, but it's also related to the larger uh, national, maybe even international, sort of concern that is is represented really by the Me Too movement, where you know how men in power uh, have taken advantage of women with a lot less power, women who they have authority over, and I think uh, on a campus that can be a professor and a student, or a grad student and a student, or a professor and a grad student. There could be a lot of different things, and so I think we're trying now to address in a, in a broad sense. You know how people respect each other. Uh, is there is there consent given? Uh, are people uh, you know behaving appropriately? And and that is a much broader and I'm I'm afraid not 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 exactly resolved overnight. But we are trying through a series of policies. And though one of the things that we're talking with uh, actually Governor Snyder's office about is is what can be done at the high school level to start earlier with young people uh, to 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 try to help educate them as to what is appropriate and what is clearly inappropriate behavior. Yeah. I mean, in other words, um, you, you're trying to uh, recreate the culture at Michigan state, or at least give the public reassurance parents of students there that you've got a safe campus and you're going to have a safe campus. And because Larry Nasser happened, doesn't mean that uh, anybody coming to Michigan State should be alarmed or afraid or uh, thinking a disaster lies just around the corner. Well, that, that's exactly right. I have I've had parents tell me at orientation this summer that their judgment is Michigan State's probably one of the safest campuses to come to right now because there's so much emphasis and so much focus on uh, on, on trying to change behaviors. 
the behaviors that we're trying to change are behaviors that are present on every campus in America. And unfortunately, as I said, this I did say to Congress in the testimony and in too many workplaces all over America. So we're, we're trying to deal with that. The, the Nasser situation, uh, you know, there were over 300 plaintiffs in these lawsuits. About 30 or so uh, were actually students at Michigan State. Nasser was the Olympic doctor, and so he drew people from all over the country coming here wanting to see the Olympic doctor. So he was wearing, as I've said, red, white, and blue long before he was wearing green and white. But we, we paid a heavy price because he was here on the faculty, and when he went out volunteering in different places around the country, uh, he still was considered somebody from Michigan State. So we, we, we bear that burden, and we've actually changed all those policies, too. If you're a doctor at Michigan State and you're going to go volunteer for somebody, you don't just go and do that now. You better find, you know, the university wants to know where you're going, what you're going to be doing, who's responsible for you, who are you reporting to, and, and you know, sort of what's the range of activity you're going to be engaging in. So those, those are the kinds of controls that, that weren't present that are now in place. Uh, I, I think they're all I think they all matter. We've, we've revamped our youth programs. Michigan State has thousands of kids who come here for science, engineering, sports camps. And because we're a land-grant school, we've got thousands of kids in, you know, 4-H camps around the state or in different programs. So how we oversee uh, or how we uh, assure that the adult who's in charge of those young people, whether they're on our campus or in a camp somewhere in Michigan, is an appropriate person, that there's been a background check. We do all of that, and a lot of that was done anyway, but now it's very consistent, I think, and a, a whole new set of protocols that are in place. So uh, I, I feel very good about where we, where we are relative to the policy, and then we've even put in place a chief compliance officer to make sure that, you know, when you've got policies and, you know, that, that are compliance-oriented, that they're, in fact, being followed, that there's a way to measure those, and we can assess how well we're doing. So all of that, I think, Bill, contributes to a, a, a level of safety that, frankly, was not there in the past and, and, in my view, isn't there on most campuses or even most workplaces in America. Right. Uh, we're running out of time here. Just a few seconds left. I just want to ask you, I think we've seen that uh, the insurance companies for Michigan State may be balking. <laughs> at uh, trying to help uh, you guys out, <laughs> and, and you walking is a very kind way to say uh, well, refusing at this point. But, yeah. Uh, well, I wanted to ask you what you've had to sue them, and, and what do you think is going to happen? We've, we've filed uh, action in Michigan courts, and we believe they have to honor their contractual obligations. In the case of the primary insurer, they're they're exceedingly difficult. Uh, we have a young woman who was a student from Germany that's here on our campus that was injured in an accident. And, She's entitled to uh, uh, a relief and a judgment that's been won, and the company has been trying to appeal and obfuscate and delay and put off paying this woman what is deservedly hers. And so if they'll do that to someone who's got that kind of a, this was a closed head injury, I mean, it's a horrific injury, and they, they don't want to pay that one. You can imagine how resistant they are when it comes then to the victims of Larry Nasser. But I believe it's the... I believe they will be required to honor their contractual agreements, and that will help offset a fair amount of that uh, $500 million uh, mediation award that we entered into. 
John Engler, former governor, interim president of Michigan State University. I want to thank you very much for being on The Political Insider. Uh, it's very enlightening conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. Good afternoon.